Welcome to The Thing About Austin, a podcast about Jane Austen's world. I'm Zan. And I'm Diane. And this episode, we're talking about Catherine and the Black Veil. Ooh. <laughs> so this episode, we are taking a look at Northanger Abbey. And to set the scene... Catherine and Isabella Thorpe have struck up a friendship in Bath, and while there might not be a lot of substance to Isabella's friendship, she is very good at setting up an impromptu gothic novel reading club. (laughs) She has recommended Anne Radcliffe's novel, Mysteries of Udolpho, to Catherine, and is asking for an update on the reading. So she says, My dearest Catherine, what have you been doing with yourself all this morning? Have you gone on with Udolpho? Yes, I have been reading it ever since I woke, and I am got to the Black Veil. Are you indeed? How delightful! Oh, I would not tell you what is behind the Black Veil for the world! Are not you wild to know? Oh yes, quite. What can it be? But do not tell me. I would not be told upon any account. I know it must be a skeleton. I am sure it's Laurentina's skeleton. Oh, I am delighted with the book. I should like to spend my whole life in reading it. I assure you, if it had not been to meet you, I would not have come away from it for all the world. Call us for all your audiobook needs, is all we're saying. (laughs) So the black veil that Catherine is referring to is a feature in the plot of Anne Radcliffe's gothic novel, The Mysteries of Udolpho. So before we can define the black veil, we have some context work that needs to occur. That is what you're all here for, so don't act like you're surprised, okay? (laughs) So just a little micro intro to Anne Radcliffe. Anne Radcliffe was a wildly popular author, like very, very popular in her time. She published six novels, one published posthumously, in addition to a travel narrative, and made a lot of money doing so. Like she was very famous, very well off. She was a big deal until at one point in time, she was kind of like, I'm done with this. And then people didn't really hear about her. I've made my money. I've made my my mark on the world. I'm going to go just go do my own thing now. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) She was extremely successful in her time. So, for example, she sold the copyright for Udolpho for 500 pounds, a lot of money. Mm -hmm. And she sold the Italian, her next book, for 800 pounds. So keeping this in context of some of the incomes that you would be familiar with from some of the other books and what, like, entire families are living off of for a year, that was a lot Mm -hmm. of money. Austin pays Radcliffe her due deference, even as she writes Northanger Abbey as a parody. So, which, and again, it kind of depends on which critic you ask. I think there are some critics who definitely read Northanger Abbey as kind of like a direct, like a very critical satire of Gothic fiction and of Radcliffe and is like really like mocking her. Other people read it more as like- An homage almost, right? Yeah, an homage, like somebody who appreciated these books, but also saw the parts in it that were a little ridiculous and funny and is kind of like, you know, poking some gentle fun at it. That's more my interpretation, but- Depending on which scholar you're talking to, what reader you're talking to, there's there's different ways of, of looking at that. So I just felt like that was important to note. But yeah. we, I think, are coming at this more from the angle of like the gentle fun. Right. Yeah. And regardless, it I mean, Austin is definitely making very specific references for very specific reasons. And so in order to understand these allusions that that are kind of cropping up throughout Northanger Abbey, it's important to get a basic plot of Mysteries of Udolpho. Just so you know, um, content warning here for domestic violence in the plot. But so I'm going to be condensing. I think I'm going to deserve a medal after this, but I'm going to be condensing over 600 pages of plot into like five sentences. So like, be prepared to be amazed. 672 in my edition. So don't sell yourself short is what I'm saying. (laughs) 
All right, are we prepared? So the protagonist is Emily St. Aubert, and she is the only child of a family whose fortunes are in decline. Her father dies, and then she has to go live with her aunt, Madame Chéron, who then marries Montoni. He brings Emily and the aunt to live in his castle named Udolfo. That's the castle's name. While at the castle, Emily experiences many events and phenomena that seem supernatural, but that all end up having logical explanations. However, there are real monstrosities at the castle, since over several months, Montoni threatens his wife with violence, trying to force her to sign over her properties to him, since they are currently settled on Emily in the event of the aunt's death. Eventually, Madame Chiron does die, and she doesn't sign over the estates, so Emily becomes an heiress, escapes the castle, and marries her young, handsome, penniless lover, Valancourt. And that, my friends, is the summary of the novel in just a few sentences. Again, very impressive, considering that this book is almost 700 pages long. (laughs) (laughs) And just a side note, I think especially with a book like The Mysteries of Udolfo, if you're going to sit down and read it, definitely recommend an edition with a good introduction, notes, Mm -hmm. all of that. Having an introduction to the text, having explanatory notes is is really helpful. The guideposts are incredibly helpful, yeah. Yeah, because this book has a lot going on. <laughs> and not all of it always makes sense, if we're being honest. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's also funny, like when you were talking about in your epic summary mm-hmm. about all the phenomena that seem supernatural, but that end up having logical yeah. explanations. Like, yeah, it's real like precursor to Scooby-Doo is really what we have going on here. Oh, for realsies, this is Scooby-Doo's content. Like, they're like, mm. <laughs> Let's be cool like Anne Radcliffe. With all that context, we can now better appreciate kind of coming back to Northanger Abbey, the passage that is likely inspiring Catherine's desperate need to know what's behind the Black Veil. So Emily, in the novel at this point, has seen a massive picture frame on one of the castle room's walls, and it has a Black Veil that's pulled across it, so she doesn't know what's behind it. And she is interrupted from viewing what's behind the veil on a previous occasion. But one night, she is determined to make her discovery. So again, this is a passage from The Mysteries of Udolpho, which is the book that Catherine, mm-hmm. in the novel Northanger mm-hmm. Abbey, it's a little inception-y, I'm sorry, yes. that's just what we're dealing with here. <laughs> so this is a passage from the book that Catherine is reading that she is very into. Mm-hmm. And so just, I want you guys to all imagine, Catherine Moreland, she's having the time of her life in Bath, staying with the Allens. She's had this book <laughs> recommended to her by her brand new bestie. She's staying up late at night and reading the following passage. Emily passed on with faltering steps, and having paused a moment at the door, before she attempted to open it, she then hastily entered the chamber and went towards the picture, which appeared to be enclosed in a frame of uncommon size that hung in a dark part of the room. She paused again, and then, with a timid hand, lifted the veil, but instantly let it fall, perceiving that what it had concealed was no picture, and before she could leave the chamber, she dropped senseless on the floor. <laughs> if you're Catherine Moreland right now, you are like screaming. You're just like, oh my God. This is the best thing that has ever happened. It's perfect. It's perfect. It is perfect. And I love this scene. And, you know, I can't help but laugh when I read this passage, not because it's like, you know, Anne Radcliffe is sitting here trying to set this like big suspense. And, and we're supposed to understand that Catherine, when she's reading it, she's fully invested. But honestly, if you have read Mysteries of Udolpho, I'm pretty sure that the number of times that people swoon, faint, or fall senseless, you have a pretty intense drinking game on your hands if you're going to just like (laughs) throw shots back each time that kind of happens. You make it through like two chapters. (laughs) You know, in this small passage, it sounds really impactful, but you know, this is about the 40th time it's happened. So it's kind of lost its impact by this time in the book. Poor Emily has a lot going on. (laughs) Just say that much. Now that we know like this is is the passage, this is the Radcliffe, this is what's going on. 
it's kind of nice to get to kind of get this reference of the black veil and say, okay, this is what Catherine has been reading. This is what's exciting. And there is something apparently horrifying behind this black veil, but we are not told in the novel, in Mysteries of Udolpho, we're not told until the very end of the novel what was actually behind that veil that makes Emily faint. And so in order to replicate Catherine's reading experience, we are going to delay that knowledge for you, our dear listeners, as well. So you just have to suffer with anticipation, just like Catherine. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) So we wanted to talk a little bit about Radcliffe's approach to her fiction and the concept of the Gothic novel. This comes from the introduction to the mysteries of Udolpho in the Oxford World's Classics Edition put out by Oxford University Press. And the introduction is written by Terry Castle. She says, But the mysteries permeating Udolpho are not simply the mysteries of plot. In highlighting the mysterious, inevitably associated for her with the uncanny powers of the human mind, Radcliffe sought to do more than merely excite readerly curiosity. She wished to awaken in her readers a sense of the numinous, of invisible forces at work in the world. So she's kind of talking about how Radcliffe was mixing together these elements of suspense with imaginative terror, with ideas of religion, and kind of going along with that, what Terry Castle also calls the sublime power of thought that Radcliffe and her contemporaries like Wordsworth and Blake were also interested in. So right before the passage about the Black Veil that we read, Radcliffe actually has her narrator state, but a terror of this nature, as it occupies and expands the mind and elevates it to high expectation, is purely sublime and leads us by a kind of fascination to seek even the object from which we appear to shrink. So she's pairing that kind of statement with then the scene about Emily going to the Black Veil. And I think it's really important to realize that she's making an important philosophical distinction between terror and horror. Terror is being described here as like a parallel experience with the sublime, something that we discussed in our episode on Marianne's Dead Leaves. It's raw emotion. It's, it's an experience that can lead to epiphany or as Radcliffe describes it, an experience that expands the soul and awakens the faculties to a high degree of life. So that's terror to Radcliffe. It's the suspense. It's the sublime keeping us on the edge. It's awe-inspiring. Exactly, exactly. And so on the other hand, we have horror. And horror, according to Radcliffe, is just a far inferior emotion or experience. She describes horror as an experience that, quote, contracts, freezes, and nearly annihilates human faculties. So she's like, okay, we don't need the gore. We don't need anything else. It's the awe, the terror, the sublime. That's what she's trying to kind of keep hyped during her novels. And I think that's really kind of what Terry Castle and her introduction is also talking about. Just that, again, that idea of the sublime power, that is the terror more than the guy chasing after you with a chainsaw, which to me sounds pretty terrifying, (laughs) but like modern usage, you know? (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I think that that's, that's important that it's like we're splitting hairs a little bit with common, you know, today's parlance. But I think... To Radcliffe, these were very distinct experiences, and she wants to make sure that we're, we're realizing that she's what she's doing here with her work. So definitely a, a fine line of distinction here. But for instance, Radcliffe spends a lot of time developing suspense and keeping us there at the extreme, like just like you, gentle listener, dying to know what's behind <laughs> the black veil. It's killing you, I know. <laughs> this is also like Henry Telney, who tells us, the mysteries of Udolpho, once I had begun it, I could not lay down again. I remember finishing it in two days, my hair standing on end the whole time. <laughs> you gotta love Henry Tilde. You know, like, he's not too cool for school. Right? He's not. He's just like, yeah, I, it was great. I loved it. I spent two days just burning through it. Yeah. Which brings us maybe to the other boy in <laughs> North <Anchor> Abbey. 
because at one point we do get John Thorpe who like, he's like, mysteries of Udolvo. And then he's like, I really like the monk, which to just put that into context, the monk was actually by one of Anne Radcliffe's contemporaries. His name was Matthew Monk Lewis. And he really used horror as opposed to terror. And he's like the dead bodies, violence and gore. And so the fact that John Thorpe likes the monk, I think, again, is very revealing. I mean, assuming that he's even read it, I just don't trust anything that that guy says. I don't think he's read it either. I think he's read like three or four sentences, maybe the first chapter, just so that he can be like, oh, yeah, I know the characters' names. The only book John Thorpe is reading is Fanny Hill. I'm sorry. (laughs) I just don't buy it. Which he cannot mention in gentle company. (laughs) (laughs) But he probably would because he wouldn't even understand. He'd be like, oh, yeah, Fanny Hill. Oh, that was was a great book. I love that. That was a great book. So this moment in Udolpho with Emily's experience at the Black Veil is a really effective parallel to Catherine's own hyped up experience of trying to unlock the secrets of Northanger Abbey, especially when she tries to unlock the cabinet in her room. She gets all worked up over what turns out to be just, you know, a bunch of abandoned lists and, you know, like nothing important (laughs) rather than this like secret diary of Mrs. Tilney's torment or I don't know, like was she expecting like there to be like bones in there? (laughs) Just a big old box of bones. It would have been more satisfying. I'm just, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I think that's what's, so, that's what's so fun about it. And actually, some critics have even said that the mysteries of Udolpho, in some ways, is a bit of a satire mm. because of, of itself, because of the fact that so much of what happens with the main character, Emily, does turn out to be like Scooby-Doo stuff, right? Like, yeah. And so there's a little bit of also kind of playing with those ideas as well. And Austin kind of takes it one step further, where not only is it, well... You guys will have to wait a few more minutes for the big black veil reveal. (laughs) But not only is the thing revealed not necessarily this like wholly terrifying whatever, but in Catherine's case, it's like so mundane. Like it isn't even something that you could confuse for something horrifying. It's just a bunch of paper. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And not with anything salacious on it. I think that that's that's what's so fun about the scene is that is that you can tell that she's getting hyped up just to get hyped up. Because there is nothing to be hyped up about. It's purely in Catherine's brain, which is, again, you know, very relevant to the way that Mysteries of Udolpho works. Because Emily is constantly being hyped up in a sense that ultimately doesn't usually have the payoff that we're expecting. So all of these gothic elements, and by gothic, we're we're talking about like the Radcliffe elements, the kind of dark things happening that seem supernatural that are not actually supernatural. These kind of gothic elements actually are really, really well played in the 2007 adaptation. And it's just perfection, really. This is one of my favorite adaptations, honestly. Also one of my favorites. Yeah. and And it's so good because they really understand the satire and they play with the gothic film elements here. So like they have the moments where Isabella is like tied up by Captain Tilney in a castle. And there's like the swashbuckling Henry Tilney fighting for Catherine's honor in the rain against a Thorpest character. I mean, it's just, it's perfection. They really nailed the satire with also like playing with the genre. And to be clear, if you haven't seen the adaptation, all of those are like basically flights of fancy in Catherine's head. Like she's kind of like imagining. And apparently, apparently, because Anne and I were talking about this, mm-hmm. like we have seen going around on the internet and like people will do memes of it. There is apparently one of these kind of scenes has like Catherine getting up naked out of a tub. And it's like, ooh, so sexy. And, you know, Henry Tilney's there. So it's like, okay. But I guess that must only be in the UK version because neither you or I have that. It's not on our film versions, no. If anybody has the deets of if that was in the original like ITV release, if that was... I don't know. If somebody can get us in touch with Andrew Davies. I mean, right. no, really, if someone can get us in touch with Andrew Davies, let us know. <laughs> That's the dream. 
I have so many questions. <laughs> so, the moment you've all been waiting for. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> yeah, waiting. Just waiting and waiting for. What was behind the black That's veil? A big question. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> so, Austin never reveals this in her novel, in Northanger Abbey, which is just great. She's not going to spoil that for her readers. She's like, hey, if you want to know what was behind the black veil, you go pick this book up. You go read it, yeah. which I really appreciate. And also, I think it's also a bit of a joke in of itself. She never really reveals the final resolution to this thing that has set Catherine off on all these flights of fancy. She just never goes there. And it kind of is it's staying true also to the fact that in the passage, you know, that started off this episode that Catherine herself is like, I've got to know, but don't tell me. Like the fact that, that staying in that moment of not knowing is the most exciting part of reading Mysteries of Udolpho. It's the most exciting part of the Gothic. And so the fact that Austin essentially leaves us right at that point is very intentional. At the peak. Mm-hmm. And now we will spoil it for you. <laughs> if you really don't want to know because Mysteries of Udolpho is on your to-be-read pile, mm-hmm. well, <laughs> tune out now. But for the rest of you who have just been tingling in anticipation. Here is the dramatic reveal of what was behind the Black Veil. Okay, so remember that Radcliffe doesn't actually tell us what happens with the Black Veil right when it happens. We have to wait until nearly the very end of the novel to hear this. And so the narrator's like, you might remember that one point back there we talked about a Black Veil. The narrator literally has to be like, remember this thing? Remember that thing that made Emily faint? And you're kind of like, which thing? <laughs> exactly. And she's like, let's go back to that. So here is a quote from, from the novel. On lifting it, there appeared, instead of the picture she had expected, within the recess of the wall, a human figure of ghastly paleness, stretched at its length and dressed in the habiliments of the grave. What added to the horror of the spectacle was that the face appeared partly decayed and disfigured by worms, which were visible on the features and hands. And then the narrator's like, but don't worry, that wasn't real. Scooby-Doo! It's it's the Scooby-Doo stuff. She continues, Had she dared to look again, her delusion and her fears would have vanished together. And she would have perceived that the figure before her was not human, but formed of wax. Okay, and here's where I gotta say, I'm gonna take Emily's side here. That's creepy. She has basically lifted the black veil and walked into the freakiest Madame Tussauds Museum of all time. (laughs) So it's true that it isn't like real, like it isn't an actual corpse with like worms coming yeah, out of it. Yeah. But I probably would have at least screamed, you know what I mean? I would have did a jump scare, so. <laughs> but I love that the narrator's like, she should have just looked twice. It was no big thing. <laughs> and then they go on to explain that it was, this was something that someone who used to live in the castle used as penance, you know, that they would stare on this figure. And so they give like a little backstory to the object, but it's just like, don't even worry about it. Emily fainted for no good reason. Right. It's just such an anticlimactic reveal. And while, again, I am kind of on Team Emily here and that I would have definitely at least screamed. I mean, I'm also well known for being, growing up, my mom used to love to like hide behind the stairs or like hide behind a tree or whatever, just like jump out. And she she just thought it was hilarious. Scare the crap out of you. Yes. One of her favorite hobbies. (laughs) But Good times with mom. (laughs) So I'm kind of with her on that. But it's just so funny, like how the narrator explains it Mm -hmm. and just just like, what was the big deal? I don't know. Like you said, it's very anticlimactic. And of course, the fact that first the narrator has to remind us, like you mm-hmm. said, about the Black Veil. So, oh, okay. Remember that thing we talked about? <laughs> and then she just has left that Chekhov's gun of Black Veils just sitting there for hundreds of pages. And then it turns out that she was so hopped up on suspense that she fainted without actually bothering to see if it was what real was real, or not. yeah. Again, turns out to be this very prosaic explanation. 
it was just for this ancestor to do penance in front of, which again, like it's still like a little intense, yeah. I think, but <laughs> what do I know? But it definitely has like nothing to do nothing with the, to do with the bigger plot, plot. Of the novel. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think that's more, that is kind of more the bigger thing of the real real. Isn't that like, oh, it turned out to be like, I don't know, a vase of flowers or something. And she fainted for no reason. Like, right. It is the kind of thing where if you don't know, like if you just see, you're like, oh my God. Mm-hmm. And then apparently if you're a young lady prone to fainting, then you faint. Right. But in terms of it actually turning out to be something related to the machinations right. of the villains or anything like that. Right. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah. So in that way, it's just very irrelevant and very much in keeping with Catherine's laundry list. Very. And in keeping with a lot of the like twists and turns in Mysteries of Udolpho, where it's like yeah. so many of them are just red herrings. You just <laughs> hopped up on terror the whole time, which is apparently a very exciting thing. Hopped up on terror and just so many descriptions of the Italian countryside. <laughs> I just love her as a writer of her time again because she was so successful she got paid oh yeah good for her i love that Mm -hmm. i love a female writer of her time who really was just like getting rich off Mm -hmm. of her books it makes me so happy yeah i think that northanger abbey does a good job of also kind of demonstrating the popularity of this the fact that that catherine is ravenous for these books and that isabella's like well i've got a list you know and she's gonna supply the Anne radcliffe novels and the other person who we know loves this book and is talking about it is Henry Tilney. Yeah. So I don't, I don't think that Austin does those things without reason. Well, she's not going to, you know, she is an author herself. She's never going to make casual references to other authors and the way that people engage with them. Like this whole novel, Northanger Abbey, is largely metafiction. You know, it's about how to read fiction effectively and, and why fiction is such an, an engaging thing. So the way that Catherine is engaging with Mysteries of Udolpho is perhaps, you know, heightened a little bit for, for satire's sake, but at the same time, based in this, this idea of what is it to be a reader of novels in this time period when novels are still just gaining traction, which I think is a fascinating premise. I also just love the idea of Catherine as somebody who's really into her fandom, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that's something that we see today. It's so fun to see someone or to be that person who is just like so into your thing, you know, you... Hello, we have a podcast about Jane Austen. <laughs> you I was know just going to say, can we get meta for a moment? <laughs> like, if we've got our podcast about Jane Austen, Catherine would have had her podcast about Anne Radcliffe. Like, that's just how this would go. Like, 100%. <laughs> exactly. I love the idea of people just really loving what they're loving and enjoying it. And, I mean, obviously, it does lead her maybe down some some roads and leads to some uncomfortable conversations with her beloved Henry Tilney. Sure. But for the most part, most of this is like really innocent. And again, there's a little bit of commentary about, okay, when can you take this too far? And you're sort of like letting this really seep into real life. But just in terms of her really enjoying the book and her enthusiasm, like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to find out. Yeah. That is so fun. Like who hasn't had that experience of just, you're staying up all night. You're so into this book that you love. And I really appreciate it yeah. about Catherine as a person. She's not ashamed of just loving the things that she loves, which also extends to Henry Tilney. Now that I think about it. Very much so. And he's like, I see that. I see that you like me. That's cute. I'm down. One of the things I love about Eleanor Tilney is she's kind of like, yeah, you're into my brother. 100%. <laughs> so fun. Eleanor is delightful. And yeah, she's like, I'll just be the third wheel. It's no problem. I'm here for this. <laughs> I see what's going on here. <laughs> anyway, we hope that was a fun little Halloween introduction to the Black Veil for all of you. <laughs> exactly. You can find us on Instagram at the thing about Austin and on Twitter at Austin underscore things. 
You can also check out our website, thethingaboutaustin.com, and email us at thethingaboutaustin at gmail.com. And we always appreciate everyone sharing the podcast and especially hitting that five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us out and it means a lot. Yeah. Next week, we'll be taking a week off to present at AustinCon. You can purchase tickets for the virtual AustinCon at 24caratproductions.com. That's 2-4-carat, as in the vegetable, productions.com. Stay tuned for next episode, where we'll be talking about Fanny's Fallen Avenues with our guest, Tyler Hamilton. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.